Book One, Chapter Ten, of Under the Witch's Moon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Under the Witch's Moon by Nathan Galazier. Book One, Chapter Ten. A Spirit Pageant. When, on the day succeeding his appointment, Tristan returned to the Inn of the Golden Shield, he felt as one in a trance. Like a puppet of fate he had been plunged into the seething maelstrom of feudal Rome. He hardly realized the import of the scene in which he had played so prominent a part. He had acted upon impulse, hardly knowing what it was all about. Dimly at intervals it flashed through his consciousness. Dimly he remembered facing two youths—the one the senator of Rome the other the high priest of Christendom, even though a prisoner in the Lateran. Vaguely he recalled the words that had been spoken between them, vaguely he recalled the fact that the senator of Rome had commended him for having saved the city, offering him appointment, holding out honour and preferment, if he would enter his service. Vaguely he remembered bending his knee before the proud son of Marozia, and accepting his good offices. In the guest-chamber Tristan found pilgrims from every land assembled round the tables, discoursing upon the wonders and perils hidden in the strange and shifting corridors of Rome. Not a few had witnessed the scene in which he had so conspicuously figured, and, upon recognizing him, regarded him with shy glances, while commenting upon the prevailing state of unrest, the periodical seditions, and outbreaks of the Romans. Tristan listened to the buzz and clamour of their voices, gleaning here and there some scattered bits of knowledge regarding Roman affairs. He could now review, more calmly, the events of the preceding day. Fortune seemed to have favoured him indeed, in that she had led him across the path of the senator of Rome. Thus Tristan set out once again to make the rounds of worship and obedience. These absolved, he wandered aimlessly about the great city, losing himself in her ruins and gardens, while he strove in vain to take an interest in what he beheld, rather distracted than amused by the babel-like confusion which surrounded him on all sides. Nevertheless, once more upon the piazzas and tortuous streets of Rome his pace quickened, his pulses beat faster, at times he did not feel his feet upon those stony ways which Peter and Paul had trod, and many another who, like himself, had come to Rome to be crucified. People stared at his dark and sombre form as he passed. Now and then he was retarded by chanting processions, that wound their interminable coils through the tortuous streets, pilgrims from all the world, the various orders of monks and the habits peculiar to their orders, wine-vendors, water-carriers, men-at-arms, zibiri, and men of doubtful calling. Sacred banners floated in the sunlit air, and incense curled its graceful spiral wreaths into the cloudless Roman ether. Surely Rome offered a wide field for ambition. A man might raise himself to a certain degree by subservience to some powerful prince, but he must continue to serve that prince, or he fell and would never aspire to independent domination, where hereditary power was recognized by the people and lay at the foundation of all acknowledged authority. It was only in central Italy, and especially in Romagna, and the states of the church, where a principle antagonistic to all hereditary claims existed in the very nature of the papal power, so that any adventurer might hope, either by his individual genius or courage, or by services rendered to those in authority, to raise himself to independent rule, 
or to that station which was only attached to a superior by the thin and worn-out thread of feudal tenure. Rome was the field still open to the bold spirit, the keen and clear-seeing mind. Rome was the table on which the boldest player was sure to win the most. With every change of the papacy, new combinations, and consequently new opportunities, must arise. Here a man may, as elsewhere, be required to serve in order at length to command. But, if he did not obtain power, at length, it was his fault or fortunes, and in either event he must abide the consequences. Revolving in his mind these matters, and wondering what the days to come would hold, Tristan permitted himself to wander aimlessly through the desolation which arose on all sides about him. Passing by the Forum and the Colosseum, ruins piled upon ruins, he wandered past San Gregorio, where in the garden lie the remains of the Servian Porta Capina, by which St. Paul first entered Rome. The Via Appia, lined with vineyards and fruit-trees, shedding their blossoms on many an ancient tomb, led the solitary pilgrim from the memories of the present to the days when the light of the early Christian church burned like a flickering taper hidden low in Roman soil. The ground sweeping down on either side in gentle but well-defined curves led the vision over the hills of Rome and into her valleys. Beneath a cloudless, translucent sky the city was caught in bold shafts of crystal light, revealing her in so strong a relief that it seemed like a piece of exquisite sculpture. Fronting the Coelian, crowned with the temple church of San Stefano in Rotondo, fringed round with tall and graceful poplars, rose the immeasurable ruins of Caracalla's baths, seeming more than ever the work of titans, as Tristan saw them, shrouded in deep shadows above the old churches of San Nerio and San Basilio, shining like white huts, a stone's throw from the mighty walls. Beyond, as a beacon of the Christian world in ages to come, on the site of the ancient circus of Nero, arose the Basilica of Constantine, still in its pristine simplicity, ere the genius of Michelangelo, Bramante, and Sangallo transformed it into the magnificence of the present St. Peter's. For miles around stretched the Aurelian walls, here fallen in low ruins, there rising in their proud strength. Whether to every shade of red, orange, and palest lemon, they still showed much of their ancient beauty near the closed Latin gate. High towers, arched galleries, and battlements cast a broad band of shade upon a line of peach-trees, whose blossoms had opened out to the touch of the summer breeze. Beneath Tristan's feet, unknown to him, lay the sepulchral chambers of pagan patricians, and the winding passage tombs of the Scipios. Out of the sunshine of the vineyard Tristan's curiosity led him into the dusk of the columbaria of Pomponius Hylas, full of stucco altar-tombs. He descended into the lower chambers with arched corridors and vaulted roofs, where, in the loculi, stood terracotta jars holding the ashes of the freedmen and musicians of Tiberius, with their servants, even to their cook. Returning full of wonder to the golden light of day, Tristan retraced his steps once again over the Appian Way. Passing the ruined circus of Maxentius across smooth fields of grass, he saw the fortress tomb of Cecilia Metella, set grandly upon the hill. It appeared to break through the sunshine, 
its marble surface of a soft cream color, looking more like the shrine of some immortal goddess of the Campania than the tomb of a Roman matron. And, as he wandered along the Appian Way, past the site of lava pools from Mount Alba, remains of ancient monuments lay thicker by the roadside. Prostrate statues appeared in a setting of wild flowers. Sculptured heads gazed out from half-hidden tombs, while one watch-tower after another rose out of the undulating expanse of the Campania. To Tristan the memories of an ancient empire which clung to the place held but little significance. Here emperors had been carried by in their litters to Albano. Victorious generals, returning in their chariots from the south, drove between these avenues of cypress-guarded tombs to Rome. The body of the dead Augustus had been brought with great following from Bovali to the Palatine, as before him Sulla had been borne along to Rome amid the sound of trumpets and tramp of horsemen. Near the fourth milestone stood Seneca's villa, where he received his death-warrant from an emissary of Nero, and nearby was that of his wife who, by her own desire, bravely shared his fate. And, last to haunt the Appian Way in the spirit pageant of the Golden Age, a memory destined to lie dormant till the dawn of the Renaissance, was Paul the Apostle, the tent-maker from Tarsus, who entered Rome while Nero reigned in the white marble city of Augustus, and suffered martyrdom for the faith. It was verging towards evening when Tristan's feet again bore him past the stupendous ruins of the Colosseum, through the roofless upper galleries of which streamed the light of the sinking sun. After reaching the Forum, almost deserted by this hour save for a few belated ramblers, he seated himself on a marble block and tried to collect his thoughts, at the same time drinking in the picture which unrolled itself before his gaze. If Rome was indeed, as the chroniclers of the Middle Ages styled her, Caput Mundi, the Forum was the centre of Rome. From this centre Rome threw out and informed her various feelers, farther and farther radiating in all directions, as she swelled out with greatness, drawing her sustenance first from her sacred hills and groves, then from the very marbles and granites of the mountains of Asia and Africa, from the lives of all sorts of peoples, races, and nations and like the Emperor Constantine, as we are told by Ammianus Marcellinus, was amazed at the grandeur of the ruins which bore witness to Rome's former greatness. The sound of the Angelus, whose silvery chimes permeated the tomb-like stillness, roused Tristan from his reveries. He arose and continued upon his way, until he found himself in the square fronting the ancient basilica of Constantine. Notwithstanding the fact that it was a vigil of the church, popular exhibitions of all sorts were set upon the broad flagstones before St. Peter's. Street-dancing girls indulged on every available spot in those gliding gyrations, so eloquently condemned by the worthy Ammianus Marcellinus, of orderly and historical memory. Booths crammed with relics of doubtful authenticity, baskets filled with fruits or flowers, pictorial representations of certain martyrs of the church, basking in halos of celestial light, tempted in every direction the worldly and unworldly spectators. Cooks perambulated their shops upon their backs, merchants shouted their wares, wine-sellers taught bacchanalian philosophy from the tops of their casks, poets recited spurious compositions which they offered for sale, philosophers indulged in argumentations destined to convert the wavering, 
or to perplex the ignorant, incessant motion and noise seemed to be the sole aim and purpose of the crowd which thronged the square. Nothing could be more picturesque than the distant view of the joyous scene, this carnival in midsummer, as it were. The deep red rays of the westering sun cast their radiance, partly from behind the basilica, over the vast multitude in the piazza. In unrivalled splendour the crimson light tinted the water that purled from the fountain of Bishop Symmachus. Its roof of gilded bronze, supported by six porphyry columns, was enclosed by small marble screens on which griffins were carved, its corners ornamented by gilded dolphins and peacocks in bronze. The water flowed into a square basin from out of a bronze pine-cone, which may have come from Hadrian's mausoleum. Bathed in the brilliant glow, the smooth porphyry of colonnades reflected, chameleon-like, ethereal and varying hues. The white marble statues became suffused with delicate rose, and the trees gleamed in the innermost of their leafy depths, as if steeped in the exhalations of a golden mist. Contrasting strangely with the wondrous radiance around it, the bronze pine-tree, in the centre of the piazza, rose up in gloomy shadow, indefinite and exaggerated. The wide façade of the basilica cast its great depth of shade into the midst of the light which dominated the scene. Tristan stood for a time gazing into the glowing sky. Then he slowly made his way towards the basilica, the edifice which commemorated the establishment of Christianity as the state religion of Rome as in its changes it has reflected every change wrought in the spirit of the new worship up to the present hour. End of Book One, Chapter Ten